Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show for this April 11, 2018 edition. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. Well, I've wanted to get this gal on for a while. It is Pastor Donna Howell. You may also know her as the daughter of a good friend of the program, Tom Horn. That's right. It is Tom Horn's daughter, Donna Howell. I read her new book, and it is groundbreaking to say the least. It is called The Handmaiden's Conspiracy, and the subtitle is How Erroneous Bible Translations Hijacked the Woman's Empowerment Movement. And listen, when we say empowerment, we're not talking about what today knows as feminism or women's Listen, this is a very exciting topic. I'm telling you, this book is a must-have book. It's timely. I just think it's a mandatory revelation, and I'm so glad to have her join us. Such a pleasure to welcome her for the first time, hopefully one of many more. Donna Howell, welcome to the program. It is so good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Sheila. Well, Donna, this is an incredible book, fascinating topic. And, you know, I've actually experienced a lot of what you write about in this book over the years. If I have preached a message, if I've had a prophetic word, you know, if I've said anything, a lot of times, you know, it's it's dismissed because it's like, sit down, shut up, sit in the corner. You're a woman. Are you even supposed to be speaking? I mean, I have just received vitriolic rebuke nasty, nasty stuff. And to the point where I didn't even want to share another prophetic word. I didn't even want to preach another sermon, even though I have just as much as a prophetic calling or a gifting as a man to preach or prophesy. And yet they will not receive it because I'm a woman. But I always like to look at scripture in context and actually do good, strong exegesis of scripture. And that's right out the window today anyway, because people really like to quote scripture and fight off scriptures out of context, I notice. I'm telling you, being a woman in ministry is really tough. What motivated you? What spurred you to tackle this incredible topic that needed tackling, by the way? Uh, my, my entire ministry focus from the beginning has been putting scripture back into proper context. And I've always known that there was, an, there was a women's issue that needed to be addressed. But I guess because I live in America and I do see very grand spokespeople of women's equality, such as, you know, Joyce Meyer, that are going there and they're doing it and they're preaching, I didn't realize it was as big of an issue as it really is. And see, the thing is, is that really worldwide, there should be no question. But especially, especially in America, where women are given, I mean, I know that a feminist might argue with this, but that women are actually given, on most levels, religious freedom in every other aspect, and social and political freedom, certainly, that all of a sudden, when they're not allowed to approach the pulpit and preach a sermon, that is what people consider usurping the authority of a man, which is uh, in uh, what Paul was referring to in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. That is backwards. That is so is so far off the beaten path of truth. And I like what you mentioned a minute ago. You like to think about, you know, wh- where is the context? And people continue to come back and all they do is quote scripture, yeah. quote scripture, quote scripture. They have no idea what they're actually quoting when they say that what Paul said was a prohibition for all women for all time. What my main motivation was in Handmaidens was to break it down and alert people. Yes, the Bible does say what it says, and it does mean what it means. But you know what the Bible 
says. Do you know what the Bible means? Those are two different things. Knowing what the Bible means means that you have to bring the Bible back to the original author, the original audience, the original culture it was written in, the original intent from the person who wrote it to the person he wrote it to. And when you do that, a lot of the the prohibitions of Paul regarding women, once the Greek is studied, it does not say what we think it means. So there's a lot of people right now that would respond to this and say, oh, that's a feminist translation. Listen, Sheila, I'm not a feminist. I'm actually... (laughs) in most cases, based on what feminism actually represents in our current society, I would consider myself almost, please don't even associate me at all, period, with feminism. Because not only does feminism, 90% of the time in what our political and social sphere considers, not only does it debase men, it denies what intrinsically makes women feminine and nurturers to begin with. So I am not a feminist. My book is not a feminist interpretation of scripture. My book actually goes back to the original Original interpretations of scriptures as given by many, actually most of them are male, uh, church fathers in the very beginning. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, you know, like you said, women of today, they hold prominent positions as senators, governors, doctors, lawyers. And yet, you know, it's really interesting when it comes to the body of Christ, what is the woman's place? Kenneth E. Hagen years ago, he actually wrote a book called The Woman Question, something like that. And he shows what the scriptures say. He talked about, you know, should women keep silent in the church? Is the man of the head of the woman? Must women always obey their husbands? Must women cover their heads in church? What about appropriate? dress. You deal explicitly with these perplexing issues, as did he. But it just goes to reinforce that some of these things really prompt a need for the teaching of sound biblical principles on the subject of women in the body of Christ. It does. And here's the thing. People who want to continue going back to quoting scripture over and over and over again, oh, I see what you're saying, Sheila, but the word of God says. What they don't understand is that what we are currently understand, what culture interprets those scriptures to be, is a patriarchal interpretation. In other words, let me put it to you this way. There's a whole chapter in my book called The Cultural Interpretation Debate. And the issue is, do we look at the word and decide today what we want the word to say based on our culture. Heavens no. The minute that we say that our 20th, 21st century lens is the way that we interpret scripture, we can twist scripture to justify any behavior that we want it to justify. We could we could do that for women's rights in the church alongside men, and we could also do it for anything we want to, homosexuality, just whatever. Anything we want to justify, we can twist scripture to bolster our point. Yeah. So you cannot, you cannot use today's culture as a lens at which to um, interpret scripture. However, you cannot divorce scripture from the culture in which it was originally written. And the minute that you take the original culture out of it, you've taken the meaning out of the text. So people want, they want to say you cannot read scripture based on a 21st century lens. I agree. But those same people that are quoting Paul to you and telling you, Sheila, that you don't have equal rights among men to minister in the way that you feel the Holy Spirit is leading you to, they are interpreting scripture through a patriarchal lens of 2,000 years ago from a Jewish culture that would have understood Paul's words to be completely different from how he meant them. And here we are 2,000 later, still misquoting Paul because of a 
cultural lens. So it's a, it's a cultural interpretation debate. Which culture should we allow to be the lens at which we pull the truth of Scripture from? The original one and nothing else. I think people get confused about which culture is the one that should be deciding what a verse means. It's like, why are we even having this conversation? We should not be discussing which culture we should be saying. It goes back to the original author. Who was Paul? Who was Paul talking to? Why was Paul writing what he was writing? Can we say that something that Paul let me put it to you this way, Sheila, this will bring it home in an easy way to understand. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians that we were not allowed, women were not allowed to go to church with our hair in a braid. He said that in um, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, he described that we are not supposed to go to church with our hair in a braid. Now, today, our culture has no problem saying, well, we don't need to worry about that. That was a cultural issue. He was saying, don't come to church immodestly because if they go to church with their hair in a braid, then they would be uncovering their hair, first of all, which was a cultural no-no at the time. And then they would be coming in and they would be feeling like they could just kind of flaunt their femininity in front of the men. They'd be going to church to catch a suitor instead of to hear the word of God. So we know today, Paul was not saying you can wear your hair in a bun, but not a braid. He wasn't saying that. We know today, widely, we accept that what he was saying is go to church in humbleness, with humility, with modesty. Cover the parts that are supposed to be covered. Don't go to church to look at men. Go to church to learn about Christ. That's what he was saying. We know that. Nail in the coffin. Done. It's a non-issue. I am not going to be in trouble. Neither will you, Sheila, if we go to church with our hair in a braid. Even though two verses later, hear me, Two verses later, in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, all of a sudden, when he says what he says about a woman not being allowed to teach because it usurps the authority of a man, which is not what he said, by the way, but that's how it's interpreted, that is a prohibition that lands over all women for all time throughout the universe into perpetuity, and it should not be that way. Why? Why is it treated that way? This is why it's treated that way, because we want to accept the culture of the original scripture when it suits us. Why do we care about braids? We don't need to care about braids. We're not less or more holy based on braids. So let's throw that one in the garbage can and say it doesn't apply to us anymore. Two verses later, it's a prohibition for all women of all times. That's inconsistent treatment of interpretation. That absolutely is. And let's not forget who Paul was speaking to when it comes to the women. I mean, you got to look at the backdrop. You have to look at, again, the culture. You have to look, and I spend plenty of time talking about the great goddess, the pagan goddess, Diana, Maya, Gaia, pick your feminine deity. You know, you look at Corinth, Greece, these temples of Aphrodite, Apollo, Poseidon, the cults of the gods of Egypt, Rome, and Greece. So you've got this eclectic concoction going on of temple prostitution, paganism, idolatry, god worship, and you've got a lot of immorality, I guess, hence the significance, and I want you to talk about this, and then we'll springboard into the other scriptures about the the gold braided into the hair. Talk a little bit about that. Actually, Paul did not say that a woman cannot wear her hair in a braid or wear gold jewelry. That's not in the Bible anywhere. What he actually wrote was instead of braided hair or gold, he wrote braided hair and gold. In that culture, that grammatical formation actually suggests braided hair with gold in it. Now, what that means, there was two kinds of prostitutes, the porne, which was where we get our English word pornography, uh, and then there was also the heretai. Now, what they were known for, these two different kinds, the porne were kind of the more overnight prostitutes that would handle the men that were coming 
in from all these different areas. Because remember that Corinth specifically was this huge, massive commercial industry area where it was located where all the all of the rivers and the land sites, the way that it worked is that this was a place for major industry. People came here from all over the place. There'd be men that would stay there only for a couple of days and then leave and go back to their house or whatever when they're done dropping off or picking up goods or whatever. So if you wanted to get a blessing from the gods, you would rent a porne. A courtesan was more like what would handle the men who lived there all the time. They were the, the higher, you almost could see these two different kinds of prostitutes serving the temple at this time. In Corinth, the porne were were pretty highly revered, but even above them were the heretrae, which were the, the courtesans. They stayed with the suitor for a long time. So the gods of the area, Corinth and Ephesus, these pagan gods, especially Artemis slash Diana of Ephesus, seem to be oftentimes the creator of, of all humankind. And these goddesses, Artemis, Diana specifically, were seen as the ones who could create all of mankind without the help of another man. So that's kind of where we get into some of the confusion, what Paul was addressing in First Timothy, what he mentioned about Adam was formed first, then Eve. There's this whole, see, Sheila, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam's the preacher, and you're supposed to sit there and be quiet. That has nothing to do with that. He's addressing specifically the goddesses of these communities and saying just because the Artemis Diana cult says that the women were formed first, that Eve was formed first and she was done so without the sperm of a man, which was the cult practice uh, that they were following at the time, doesn't mean anything. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So your religion is wrong and this one's right. That's what he was saying. So there's that. But the hair and gold, these women, they would weave their hair up in in braids and do these really intricate things and they would weave gold in and out of their hair. Now, I know this is going to sound really gross and kind of strange, so pardon me for this, but Hippocratic medicine at the time of Paul believed in Ephesus and in the surrounding territories, so it would have influenced Corinth as well, that hair was congealed sensual body fluids. Mm. Now that's revolting, and we know better now. Science knows better now. Paul was not saying that this belief in medicine was right or wrong. He he didn't make it a relevant topic. Let's discuss what Hippocratic medicine believes in. He was just saying, look, if your culture believes that wearing your hair up in braids with gold weaved around in it, that is um, a private matter between a male and a female when they come together and join together and there's a hormonal influence going on, then you need to keep that covered because the culture sees this as a woman showing her hair as a sexual thing. It'd be like if today somebody came into church wearing a bikini or maybe even worse, topless. Okay, he's saying, don't do that. Wear your hair covered. Don't do your hair in the same way that these courtesans and prostitutes at the temples are doing their hair. So there's all this modesty issue dealing with women so that they would understand to go to church in modesty and in full uh, focus on Christ. That's that's where a lot of that comes from. Yeah, and I think that really ties into when Paul was talking about this idea of women being silent in the church is because... You have to picture again to here, Donna, you know, you just tied this whole thing in with Diana, Artemis, how women are super revered as goddesses. A lot of these women at this time were also very educated and they were very disruptive in the services because, you know, thinking, hey, I'm going to teach the men, men revered women as these goddesses, these highly educated goddesses. And so you can see why there was a need for Paul to address some of this kind of behavior. Yeah, because see, their body 
body was the conduit of the gods. That's precisely why if a, if a man wanted a blessing from a god, a pagan god or goddess, in these cultures, they would go down to the temple and they would pay somebody or they would trade something in that culture, whatever they had to do, they would secure themselves a woman and they would go in and right there in the temple in front of a, a, a false god or a likeness, an image, whatever, they would enact all kinds of sexual profanities that we would consider to be just the ultimate ultimate blasphemy. These women were there. They were dealing with it every day, all the time. They gave their bodies before the gods, and their bodies were the reasons why a man was allowed to be blessed. So, take that culture. Now, Paul comes in, right? He is reversing pagan idolatry and culture, and he is saying, he's saying, women, this is the new guy. Jesus Christ, he died, and he's he's preaching the gospel message, and people get this idea, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can be close to God for free? I mean, we're not talking about indulgences and sex before idols. I mean, I, I can just believe in somebody and be saved. Whoa, that flipped the culture on its head. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you've got this new Christian church and you've got men and women who have belonged for centuries up to this point to a certain culture where a man does not reach a god unless a woman gives her body in order for that to happen. Now, that's not what Paul did. Paul had nothing to do with that, but that's the culture that they belonged to. So when he organized this ch these churches in Corinth and in Ephesus, these women were coming in who had obviously on a political level, they were not equal to men. But on a religious level, they were not only equal to men, and sometimes they were actually considered above men in their ability to be the, the body conduit through which a man would communicate with a god. So now here comes Christ, and here comes Paul, and here comes this new message, and it's almost like on some small degree, as even the pottery, the broken pottery found at both the Ephesus and Corinth sites since then have depicted in art, men were going, oh, there's a new God. Okay, we've got we've to worship him now too. Now, Jesus Christ was not the be-all, end-all for those people yet. He eventually was, but not yet. There was this early syncretism. Well, okay, so I, I do so many rituals for Artemis Diana, and then I say my prayers to Jesus Christ, and then I go over here and I talk to this man from an Eastern religion. There was a huge syncretism. There was not one major Christian. Like, we think of, we live in America, Sheila. When we think of a Christian church, we know that if we walk into a Christian church right now, nobody is going to be praying to Artemis Diana. Right. Nobody's going to be having sex in the middle of a Christian church. We know that. We are so far removed from that culture. So when Paul was addressing some of the things that he was addressing, and we certainly don't have time to go through every single little thing that was going on in those cultures in this limited interview, but my book does address it. He was going in and saying, look, this is a new era, folks. You can't, you cannot expect that a woman is going to be the only one who knows theology around here. You know, look, and think about it in both 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. These are where the trouble verses come from about the women's issue, he consistently went back to issues of false teaching and sexual immorality. Everything about the context as a whole suggests that there were trouble women in this area. Yeah. And in the case of 1 Timothy, a lot of people don't want to see this. They don't want to admit it. 
or excuse me, first Corinthians, not first Timothy. He goes from talking about women as a, as like corporately and then over to one woman and then back to women corporately. So he's addressing one specific false teacher in in first Timothy when he says that he he suffers not a woman to teach and usurp authority of man there's this whole moment where he's actually referring only to one woman it, and the, it goes from plurality to singular to plurality again and we want to graze straight past all of that Greek. But speaking of Greek, Sheila, I don't mean to dominate. There are so many times we we do not understand because we read the modern day, mostly the KJV. The Christian church is very stuck on believing KJV is the only one we should be reading. And, and that's fine if we want to think that. But we have to believe, we have to understand too, that what we should take further than the KJV is the actual Greek that was written before the KJV. And the Greek Paul specifically identified leader after leader after leader of the early church. Several of them were women. Many of them ran early churches. They actually started churches that we now celebrate. The, a lot of people don't understand that there are so there are so many times that Paul calls somebody a leader of a church, and it's a woman, and he commends her for her, her service in leading a church. He flat out called them that, but when it was uh, translated into English, we get words like servant. Mm -hmm. Can I give you an example? Phoebe was referred to in Paul's writing as diakonos, okay? That means deacon. There were two words for deacon at that time, diakonos, which was male, diakonesa, which was a female, both of them noun. A woman would have never been referred to as diakonos if the word, the noun, also had a feminine variant, unless the man writing of her or introducing her was saying she was equal to a man in that office. So if you understand what Paul actually did, he not only said that Phoebe was, in Romans 16.1, he not only says that Phoebe is uh, a diakonos, that she is a deacon of the church, a leader of the church, he says she's a leader of the church who is equal to the men. Now what happened when diakonos got translated into um, English, every time it's in reference to a man in the KJV, it says minister. Every time it's re it's translated, uh, I mean, in this one case, when it's translated in the case of Phoebe, it was translated servant. So we actually have a woman here who lost in translation, according to the original Greek, as Paul wrote it before the KJV, before English came along. We have a woman who is um, immediately identified as a, a leader of the church equal to men in her office, and we turned her into a servant when we switched it and published the KJV. Now, I'm not trying to say that we should be angry at the KJV or we should question the authenticity of the KJV. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to be willing when there is a prohibition, Sheila, a prohibition that comes along and says, Sheila, because you were born a woman, you cannot be right when you say the Holy Spirit is leading me to fill in the blank. If we're going to bring a societal permanent prohibition for all women for all times, we need to be able to go back to the Greek. If we're taking it from the English, we've started from the wrong authority. It almost chokes me up. And it just literally brings a tear to my eye to think of how many women have gone through hell. I'm one of them. How many women in the past even have been suppressed from a very powerful Holy Ghost anointing that were told to shut up, sit down. Some were even killed. You know, we've got it pretty easy today. You know, a little derogatory relegating to the depths of the damned and those are the nice ones. That's nothing in the face of killing someone over a botched translation. 
that's enough to just make your blood boil. But anyway, that's a side issue. But then you look at these strong, incredible women like Priscilla, like Phoebe. And and you know, I've always felt this was really interesting. And you brought it out so astutely in your book, right out of the gate in Romans 16. Think about this for a sec. He said, I commend unto you, Phoebe, our sister. Okay, and then listen to what Paul says. Now the men are going to lose their mind. In the Thayer's Greek lexicon, when you look up that word, succor, prostate, in the Greek. Now, think about this. It means a woman set over others. And Paul goes on to further say, look, whatever this woman needs, you give it to her. In whatever way she needs any of your assistance, pointing to the men, you assist her. So take all this in its context. Wow, that's just Priscilla. We haven't even gone into Phoebe and Junia. Well, yeah. And here's the thing. Not only did Paul repeatedly recognize women uh, leaders in the church, it's all in the Greek, it's all in my book, and it's not Donna feminism theological interpretation. It's the scholarly interpretation that has been there and been blocked for 2,000 years by mostly men who have uncovered this. Not only did he repeatedly recognize women leaders in the church, he did not actually prohibit the way that we think he did. For instance, a woman should not speak in the church. Okay, when you actually look at what he was saying in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, that a woman should not speak, when we hear that in our modern society, we see speak as like a parent verb. That means you cannot open your mouth and utter anything. We look at that as a literal silence. You are being silenced. Okay, but in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, he goes on to talk about how a woman should speak in the church, how she should pray, and how she should prophesy. And so, hello, 1 Corinthians is openly identifying that women are allowed to pray and prophesy in the church. A prophet is one of the highest gifts given in the church of for you know anthropoi is what the is what the word actually says that gifts will be given from the spirit into anthropoi yeah. men and women anthropoi is, is in the KJV translated that the Holy Spirit will give unto men and most people in our modern church will understand when somebody writes unto men that it means unto mankind which also involves women but the original Greek word was anthropoi meaning that every single one of those gifts that Paul wrote about that the Holy Spirit will give some people the gift of this that and the other, among which was some preachers, some prophets, some apostles, some teachers. He went down that list. It was anthropoi who was going to be the inheritors of those gifts, right? Yeah. The Holy Spirit gives all of those gifts I just listed to anthropoi, men and women, people generically, people of God. So women are inheritors of those gifts. That also bolsters the fact that on the day of Pentecost in the upper room, both men and women, the Bible specifically identifies that there were women in the upper room that day, that men and women went out and preached throughout the streets. So first of all, we have the Holy Spirit's permission. Paul agrees with the Holy Spirit in his writing that women are going to also be equal inheritors of these gifts, okay? 1 Corinthians 11.5 talk about how women are supposed to pray and prophesy in the church. So when he said that we're not supposed to speak in the church, he did not say we have to be silent completely. What kind of speak did he mean by that? It boils down to a, the Greek word laleo. The way that it is used in that specific sentence that a woman should not speak, it's actually should be translated that a woman should not keep talking. Because when Paul wrote that, he had 30 words in the Greek to choose from. He could have said a woman should not teach, a woman is not allowed to scream. He had 30 different words that would have 
also meant that they were speaking, but it would have been more specific. He chose the most generic of all words, which we would know as women should not talk in church. Now, here's the second thing. Uh, He used the the present tense of the verb, not the common aorist tense, which means instead of woman should not talk, it says a woman should not keep talking in church. So for 2,000 years now, we have continued to quote 1 Corinthians 14.34 as proof that a woman should not be a speaker in a church. When actually what it is, is we should look at that and view an ancient church from 2,000 years ago with a sign above the door that says, don't chatter during service. We are the ones who have made that change. God didn't make that change. So first we have the authority of Paul recognizing women as leaders, the authority of Paul recognizing the Holy Spirit, equal inheritance of men and women, and then the Holy Spirit himself. Not to mention, there's this whole entire section of my book that goes into how Jesus Christ absolutely flipped society on its head and empowered women specifically to preach. Yeah. And, and that's all in there. There, The proof is, is in the pudding. But also, the Father God in the garden, he created women to be a connecto azer, which means a help meet suitable for. That's what we have in the English. But connecto doesn't just mean suitable for. It actually means equal to and corresponding to. Now, azer, it does mean one who helps. But also, all throughout the Bible, it's actually being used in reference to something that completes another half. For instance, David in the Psalms, uh, 121, wrote of it of God. I look to the hills from whence cometh my azer. Azer in that instance is God. I'm not saying that women are God. That's feminist theology. What I'm saying is that whatever Adam was, he was not complete without the azer. That's powerful. That's not a cute little helper with aprons who's going to go pick up crayons and bake cookies. That's a powerful, wise counselor. You know what? And we're both moms. So please don't email me saying, oh, what's wrong with baking cookies and picking up crayons? Hey, we've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, but you're missing the key point in this. But really, Donnie, you also just touched on something I think is really important because, of course, men love to use this to browbeat women. Some men do, not all men. Some men are misogynists. <laughs> Some women are misandrists, which is the opposite. They hate men. That is not what we're talking about right now. I'm talking about how men love to throw this scripture around, how women should be submissive. But the one they always want to kind of glaze over, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. There's another line, if you read a little more down under wives be subject to your husbands, or one version says submissive, read a little further down, it says submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. But no one wants to talk about the part where they're submitting themselves to each other. It's not a one-sided thing here. So I I just get a kick out of how that submit is just absolutely misused. Yeah, well, Ephesians 5.21 is pretty clear that there needs to be a mutual submission. And I know I'm going to get myself in hot water by talking about that, but it just simply is what the Bible says. And if you read the Greek, it's what the Bible means. Let me put it to you like this. In my marriage, I tell my husband, James, I want what you want. You know, I want that for me. Even if you actually say, I want to go do this thing over here. And I, in my flesh, I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do that. Or I don't think that's right for us. When I go to the Lord about it, I'm not going to pray, Lord, 
Lord, will you please change my husband, James? I'm going to say, Lord, will you please change me? Change me to make me want what he wants. That's true biblical submission, okay? Now, my husband's going to do the same thing. If he is over and he's saying, uh, my wife wants to go to Florida and I don't think that she should go to Florida, whatever the case may be, he's not going to say, Lord, will you please fix my wife? I'm the man. And so I need you to go fix the cute little apron that I'm married to. No, he's going to say, change me to want what my wife wants. Now, if you're really in a marriage where both people are saying that and they're bringing the Lord between them and they're constantly saying, Lord, change me so that I can understand my spouse, open up my eyes to see what my spouse is actually wanting to do in this situation. Nobody ever has to have the last word. Nobody ever has to, quote, win the argument. There's a mutuality that is supposed to occur on a spiritual, biblical level. Ephesians 5.21, look into the old languages. What did that mean? It Submit does not always mean that your husband's going to come to you and say, okay, Sheila, I submit. Fine, you can have your way. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to always go to my husband and say, okay, you win. I hate it, but I'll do what you're telling me right. to do. I'll obey. Biblical submission means both one to the other. And we should be doing that in, in church uh, from believers to believer as well, but especially in a marriage. There is a feminine role. Please do not deny your femininity. Women out there who are hearing me, do not deny your intrinsic femininity, your intrinsic nurturer. Don't deny that. Don't try to be a man. Let your husband be a man. But also, there should always be a moment where the husband is allowing his wife to be the connecto ezer, the wise counselor that completes him, an equal match for him, somebody who is equally wise in mutuality, fullness. You see what I'm saying, Sheila? We have garbled this thing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an understatement. But you know what the bottom line is, Donna? here? It's like the highest calling that a man or a woman has. It's the same for both of us. It's being fully committed and being totally in commitment, obedience, and submission to Jesus Christ. Whether we're a man or woman, it doesn't matter. That really is our highest calling. That is so true. I couldn't put, I could not have put it better myself. You just said something so profound a minute ago. You said, women, don't try to be like men. I don't think any wiser words were spoken because think about on every sitcom, and I don't really watch any TV, but almost exclusively in the movies and the sitcoms in society today, you also have this thing where it's like, oh yeah, men wear the pants, but the women just tell them which pair to wear. They're very emasculated. They're very feminized. They're very, they're just, they're just browbeaten into submission and I just find that very nauseating that you have this total role reversal now where you used to have the, the strong Cary Grants, the, the John Wayne types of yesteryear, these strong men. And now today you've got these men that just they're like these little effeminate Ahabs, not all of them. So men, please don't email me. Sheila, come on, I'm not a soy boy. I'm a manly man. Well, pal, good for you because you're the last of a dying breed, fellas. But but I guess what I'm saying, Donna, is, you know, feminism is just, I, I think it is straight out of the pit of hell. And I know you don't get into like gender fluidity in your book, but boy, feminism has really botched society because most of these feminists are just ungodly heathens. And when you take God's order of things, well, Satan has just perverted God's order. And what you have in feminism is an absolute mess. And it's no wonder we're in the dung heap as families that we are. 
feminism is so it is so anti-male it is so anti-female it's anti-anything that makes sense you know you talk about how we're all arguing about you know what is a man and what is a woman and what is all this stuff we wouldn't if we had ever if we as women could stop raising our flags and demanding all this stuff and look at what a man was actually created to be it is a beautiful thing i mean Um, If men could stop doing what they've done to you and what they've done to me and say, you're a woman, sit down, shut up and repent for opening your mouth in the church. I'm sorry, we have the political and social rights in many arenas, but we do not have the religious right to speak and be be considered equals. We just don't. If men would stop doing that and look at what a woman is actually created to be. There are so many gender issues that would be instantaneously corrected if everybody could plug into some kind of a Holy Spirit yeah. download right now. I mean, don't you wish that was available? <laughs> like, I wish that the whole world would just stop and read what the Greek says, read what the Hebrew says. What were we actually designed to be? And here's another interesting thought, Sheila. You know how in in the Genesis account, there's the relationship between a man and a woman is stated twice. Once it's described before the fall, where man and woman are created equal in the image of God, equal inheritors of the image of God, and that they have equal dominion. Created he them, and they have dominion over the earth, okay? Full equality, mutuality, it's beautiful. And then they fall from grace, and it bungles the entire thing. Now the woman's going to want for the man, and the husband's going to have to work the fields, and there's almost like this curse that that we've kind of just forever been dealing with, right? Look what happens in Matthew when Jesus is questioned about a relationship between a man and a woman, when he's questioned about marriage. Which of those two relationships does he quote from? He quotes from the Genesis account prior to the fall. You ever consider that? Why would Jesus do that? If we were supposed to right now in Christianity, in the realms of Christianity, because let's give him the authority that the authorities do, in the realms of Christianity, if we were supposed to still be living like the cursed Adam and Eve, why would Jesus say the ideal relationship and then quote from prior to the fall? He reversed it. He took it back to what God created. Why would it please God? She loved for us to live in a relationship that is the product of a fall from grace. Excellent point. Wow. Wow. And you know, (laughs) think about that. When you think about the garden, what is the very first thing that Adam did? This woman you gave me, it's her fault. So, I mean, there was a blame game right off the hop. But, you know, it's amazing to me because, Donna, Jesus had more respect for women than any man of his day. He wasn't even supposed to be talking to the woman at the well. You look at all the different biblical accounts. You look at that woman they were going to stone to death. Can you imagine men? Think about this picture. Visualize this man. You go down to some little town square in your place, let's say Texas, you see a bunch of men, they're throwing these huge rocks at a woman until she dies. They stone her to death. Now imagine that's your daughter. Picture now that's your wife. Those men are throwing rocks at I mean, are you kidding me? We would be in a fervent uproar. And what did Jesus do? He totally put the brakes on that. How convicting to say, hey, let the rocks fly, boys. I want the first person that's without sin cast it. Yeah, well, they all put their stones down and walked away. But it's just amazing. After the tomb, who was the first person that he appeared to? Didn't appear to a man. (laughs) He appeared to a woman first. 
Just interesting side note. And, you know, we haven't even got into Junia yet. Well, I believe she was an apostle. Talk about her. Oh, Junia. In Romans 16, 7, Paul writes, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Okay, so around the year 1250, first of all, here's the first, the gender issue. Around the year 1250, Junia started popping up in Bible translation as Junius, with an S at the end, which was an attempt to make her name masculinized. First of all, Junius as a male name does not exist in any of our records of Greco-Roman culture to begin with. So that was kind of silly that they thought simply by putting an S at the end of her name that their culture was going to recognize her as male. But second of all, all of the early church fathers knew she was a woman. So that didn't last for too long. I mean, uh, Martin Luther got a hold of the idea that she was male, and he changed her to a male, a Junius, in, in, his, in the Martin Luther translation. Right. So for several hundred years, Junius was a man. So that's the first issue, the gender issue. The second issue is among. When he writes, who are of note among the apostles, the word among is seen as two different ways. Number one, a member of, or number two, known to. So we can say she was an apostle, she was among them, and she was one of them. Or we could say she was well known to the apostles among like in the circle they knew who she was but he's not directly calling her an apostle this boils down to the greek word ain with the word ain you have to understand that word in this context and we don't have time to get into exactly all the different contexts that that one's used in the bible but in my book it does go into that and it explains that in this particular context and in this grammatical structure that word ain means a member of a group a part of a larger whole so he was specifically calling Junia an apostle. And I am not the only one who thinks this. Uh, Origen, Bishop Hatto of Vercelli, Deacon Theophylact of Constantinople, Jerome, who was the translator of the Latin Vulgate Bible, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Ambrose, Augustine, John Chrysostom, all the early fathers, they acknowledged two things about Junia. One, that she was a woman, and two, that she was an apostle. In fact, John Chrysostom even famously wrote, Oh, how great is the devotion of this woman that she should be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle. Mm. So we have all the early fathers. I'm talking the fathers, okay? Understand I'm not saying all the early feminist mothers. I'm saying the fathers of the church are acknowledging that this was a woman apostle, that Paul specifically regarded a woman apostle. Apostle is the highest office you can have in the Christian church, period. And now we have all of these people who come, who are, whenever the the Junia uh, conversation is brought up, men want to respond, male ministers of today want to respond and say, that's a feminist translation. No, it's not. It's an early church father translation. And it has been since the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think about these powerful women that God used not only back then, but even women that trailblazed for us even. You know, I think, well, you mentioned Joyce Meyer. I think of Corey Ten Boom. I think of Catherine Coleman. You know, she writes about a lot of the absolute harassment, you know, and that's putting it mildly, that she got for being a powerful, anointed woman of God. And look at all the absolute incredible healings. A lot of men got healed, by the way, by Catherine Coleman. God used her in a mighty, mighty way. So I think this whole thing is very harmful to the church when women are suppressed from coming into what God has called them to do in the body of Christ. 
Yes, yes. Catherine Coleman was uh, amazing, and, and you're right. When she came into the, the scene, she offended a lot of people just because she was a woman who was willing to wear high heels and flowing gowns and pretty jewelry, and it was like, what is this woman doing <laughs> talking? But look at, the num- look at the thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and possibly an uncountable number yeah. in our finite humanity that that woman was able to minister to, and, and people who came to know the Lord because of her ministry. Do you know, Sheila, there's a part of my book that goes into how it is actually damaging the church that women do not have full equality. Part of that is based on, you know, Pew Research Center, for instance, acknowledged that up to 60% of most denominations um, attendees are women. It doesn't hurt a woman to go to church on Sunday morning and hear from a male perspective. It's good for us to. It opens our mind. But when it becomes a problem is when a man never hears the woman's side. That's the problem. I'm not saying that we should ever say down with men and women are taking over the church. That is, again, that's feminism. But there's such a balance that is being completely rejected. Think of how many women today are doctors, psychological experts in their field from Monday through Friday, but they get to church on Sunday and they're told your expertise isn't welcome here. Why? Not because you don't have a degree, not because you don't have expert theological training, because you were born a woman. That's harming the church. Well, you just bring up so many amazing points. This book is excellent. And I think every I think every man should get a copy of this book. I know the price you've paid to write it. I wouldn't expect it from anybody else. I mean, you clearly have got your father's brilliance. You nailed it. I don't think anyone has ever really delved into the kind of exegesis you do. It is absolutely unequivocal. The argument can't be broken. After a man reads this book, it's all over but the crying, boys. I hate to break it to you, but men, sadly, a lot of men just think, women, hey, all they were created for was just to appease men. That, fellas, is incorrect. You know, hey, listen, and I think you made this point so astutely. Adam was regarded by his creator as incomplete and deficient. As he lived at first, before a woman was created, he lived without the benefit of a proper counterpart. I I think we really should look at each other as counterparts. And boy, we'd avoid a whole lot of messiness. But what I really want to talk to you about here, I want you to talk about when you went in the Jim Baker show. Were you surprised with the reaction, the absolute backlash that you got after this book first came out? And then I guess part two of this question is, what surprised you in the journey of, you know, researching this book? Well, when they released a a short video of me preaching on the Jim Baker show, it was actually a day where I received two standing ovations in one day. And praise the Lord, that ain't me because I'm actually, I was very nervous that day to even be on his show. So what (laughs) came out of me was totally led by the Holy Spirit. So it's not, yay, I'm amazing. It was like, wow, God was amazing that day. Um, When they posted that later on, if that had been a man, it would have been, yay, amen, we agree, brother, hallelujah. But because I was a woman, there was not one comment that was kind, not one. Every single one of them came against me. Now, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying that because I want people to feel sorry for me. I'm sharing that because I want people to see how backwards this is. So there was that. I'll tell you what it really, 
okay, what it really boiled down to for me and what w- dawned on me, hit me like a freight train, gave me this eye-opening awe of God was when I saw that the very man who was silencing women, Paul, was actually one of the biggest liberators of women. And that it, when you actually think of who is the utmost top authority of Christianity, Christ for sure, everyone will say Christ, but also Father God and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. God the Father created women to be the connectedways heir. The Holy Spirit liberated her on the day of Pentecost. And Peter even stood before a crowd and said, Today is the day that we are seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And if you look that up, Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, otherwise known as preach, if you look into the original Greek of the word, original uh, meaning of the Greek word prophesy. What Peter did was he stood before a crowd and he said, Today. Today is the day we are seeing the fulfillment of that prophecy. Today we are seeing women go out into the into the streets and preach. We're seeing that right now. Peter acknowledged that. We have the Holy Spirit liberating us and even being seen as by major apostles as uh, being acknowledged openly as we have now been liberated and that it, this is the fulfillment of the end days prophecy. And then we have Jesus Christ who, yes, he did liberate women. He went to Mary and Martha. You've got Mary who is sitting at Jesus. Jesus' feet learning. What was she learning? She was learning theology. This is in the same era where uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the writings of the Jews frequently would say, well, one of the things they wrote frequently back then was that I would rather put the Torah in the, ha- in, in the fire than to put it in the hands of a woman. In other words, they would rather burn the Holy Scriptures than to let a woman learn. That is so big. Jesus is sitting there teaching her theology, and when Martha comes in and says, tell this woman to come help me and do the things a woman should be doing, the domestic chores of a female, he says, Martha, Martha, Mary's learning theology at my feet. She's doing what she ought to do. Then he goes to Sychar, Samaria, which he's not even supposed to be there anyway if he's going to follow the traditions of the Jews because that was unclean territory. And he goes up to the woman at the well. He talks to her. She's a misunderstood woman. I'll Briefly, I'll say this. She was divorced five times, right? Yeah. Now she's living with man number six. Let me help you out. A woman was not allowed to divorce a man. She was promised to be taken care of by five different men. And then she is, uh, I don't. we don't know why she's not married to number six. She doesn't want to, or he didn't make her, we don't know. But she's nervous, and she's not marrying number six. Jesus comes along as man number seven, which is beautiful irony, because seven is the number of God. Jesus comes along as man number seven. He has a 15-minute conversation with her. He turns her into a preacher, and she runs through the entire area of Sychar, converting the entire town. And she brings everybody back to Jesus Christ. Think of the influence of Jesus Christ in that moment. He had two days, the Bible said. He stayed in Sychar for two days. He had two days to run behind her and say, wait a minute, woman at the well. Hang on a minute. You're a woman. Leave the theology to the men. But he didn't. He let her do what she did. And when she brought people to him, he responded to her. What does that make her? It makes her the first revivalist, Christian revivalist in world history. (laughs) It makes her the first evangelist. He had the same the same decision he could have made, Sheila, when he came out of the, the tomb. He could have come out and seen Mary and said, Oh, Mary, I've got news, and I've got news that I want delivered to the men. Go find me a man. Or he could have, since he's God, he could have simply appeared to a man. He didn't. He appeared to Mary, and he said, Go tell the men. Mm. Now, no, he did not say go preach behind a pulpit. He said, Go tell the men. 
Why didn't he say go preach? Because that was being that had to wait until the day of Pentecost, and we all know that. He gave her in that moment, he dispelled in that moment the idea that a woman cannot carry the message of Christ and that she can't deliver it to a man. That was dispelled. Yeah, that dispelled a whole lot of things. Well, listen, in the waning moments, Donna, talk a little bit about how the book's being received and where folks can pick this up. I know they got a, a great deal over at Skywatch. So how can people get this amazing book? And I highly recommend it. And then just talk briefly about how it is being received. Um, it, explosively. I, I'm surprised, actually, at how many people have been receiving it well. We've received probably, um, uh, me personally, I've received three or four um, emails now from women who have been personally liberated and are rededicating their lives to the Lord and taking what they believe to be a lifelong Holy Spirit calling, and they're going to take it into fruition now because they believe they have the right. Um, but also, I've received a lot of emails from men saying, wow. thank you for finally addressing this because I've always never known. Do they or do they not have the right? Like, it seems silly that they wouldn't have the right. That seems preposterous. You know, that the Holy Spirit would allow them on the day of Pentecost, but not today. Like, what? And they are thanking me. So, there's been a lot of positive feedback. There's been a slew of negative feedback as well. But I got to tell you, Sheila, it's funny. The negative feedback always says, I don't need to read your book. I read the Bible. And the Bible (laughs) has a higher authority than your book. And whereas that is absolutely true, that the Bible has a higher authority than my book, The Greek has the ultimate highest authority of what was actually written by the original authors, and they're missing that. So it's funny that, you know, people are going to come against you and say whatever they're going to say, but you just got to keep plugging and hope it works out. As far as where you can get the book, um, skywatchtv.com, they are running a special right now. I know that uh, Jim Baker is also running a special over on his website, so you can get them there. But my book's available on Amazon, so... Okay, great. Well, there you have it, folks. Amazon, or you can also just go in the description below, and I've got a direct link to the best specials really over there at skywatchtv.com. Folks, get this book. Donna, thank you for having not only the backbone to write this book, but also thank you for your time in coming on the program today. What a fantastic job you did in this. It's just so timely, so groundbreaking. Really good job. And come back with your next book. Thank you so much, Sheila. Folks, that was Donna Howell. Get this book. It's got a great forward, by the way, by Derek Gilbert. It is just a very impressive book. Again, the title, The Handmaiden's Conspiracy, How Erroneous Bible Translations Hijacked the Women's Empowerment Movement. Not to be mistaken for the women's feminist movement, but just again, wow. I just, I know I keep saying get this book, but you have to read this book. Go over there to skywatchtv.com. It's on the featured offers there if you go into the store. That Handmaid's Conspiracy promotional offer is what I've got linked below. It's an offer that has a retail value of over $160. It's for $29.95. I mean, come on. You, You really can't get any better than that. The Defender Bible Limited Edition King James Version with the expanded Apocrypha is in that. Radicals is another book that Reverend Donna Howell uh, wrote, and that one is amazing. And then Final Fire is the next Great Awakening right around the corner. Well, I know someone who seems to think so. He's coming on next week. It is a spectacular.
Spectacular package. And then there's another book there that Donna wrote with her dad. Tom Horn is in that package as well. For under 30 bucks, you're, you're nuts not to get that, especially with that beautifully bound limited edition red letter King James version of the Holy Bible with the Apocrypha. I bet you that alone is 100 bucks right there. So again, folks, it's linked there. Get it. And hey, men, <laughs> keep your emails, please. I know I'm just going to get hammered on this show, but I love you, men. Let's just be good counterparts. <laughs> Very special guest that's coming on this Friday. I had to bump Michael Lake to next week, but Carla Butod is coming on this Friday. Bombshell show. It's going to rock your world, folks. You don't want to miss this. I haven't had her on for a while, so she's long overdue. And boy, we're going to get into a topic. You think this show is controversial? Oh, I'm looking forward to the emails. Hey, bring it on, I guess, right? It's just par for the course. Oh, hey, very quickly, don't forget because a big surprise is coming on the 15th for my VIP patrons. I'm going to get into that on Friday's show. That's coming fast and furious, and you want to be a part of this. Trust me on that. Go in the description. Be Become one of my patrons on Patreon. And you know why it's a really good time to become a patron of mine? Because you're going to get access to shows that are not available to the general public. I'm on my last strike with YouTube. My days are numbered over there. But next week, I am not uploading any shows to YouTube. Only my patrons are going to be able to listen to my shows next week. Find out how you can become a VIP patron member. I did the math and I think it ends up being something like 47 cents a show. So yeah, I think it's worth it. I hope you do too. Thanks for listening tonight. We'll see you real soon. Good night and God bless.